Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at the Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Douglas Murray, a best-selling British author and journalist who is the Associate Editor of The Spectator magazine, a columnist for The New York Post, and a Fox News contributor. He's also one half of the debate team, along with American writer Matt Taibbi, in the latest Monk debate centered on the resolution, be it resolved, don't trust the mainstream media. I was grateful to speak with Douglas on the afternoon of the debate about some of its key topics, how he's avoided being canceled, and why he thinks democracy must be rooted in gratitude. The next voice you'll hear is mine in conversation with British author and journalist Douglas Murray. Well, uh, Douglas, thank you so much uh, for for joining me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, Let's start with tonight's Monk debate. Uh, You've written for and appeared in various publications over the year. And for whatever the reason, it seems clear that trust in the media in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and elsewhere has eroded. Why do you think that is? I think broadly speaking, it's because the mainstream media has become very visibly partisan. Um, The idea of impartiality was always the dream of mainstream media, certainly of national sponsored media of a kind that you have in Canada, that we have in the UK, and exists to a lesser extent in some countries, including America. Um, for all sorts of reasons, which will come up in the debate, uh, these impartial organizations, to greater or lesser degrees, gave up on the idea of impartiality. They decided to enter the political fray. Um, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, is simply that the multitude of voices that are out there mean that these days the idea of relying on one source of news seems as absurd as relying on one shop for all of your clothes or food. Um, We shop around these days for news. And that has all sorts of uh, positives about it. It has some negatives, which will always be brought up. But it has positives as well. And the positives include, I believe, the fact that the mainstream media has become transparent to the general public. By which I mean that It would have been harder in earlier days to have known why there was a spin on a story. What made it have a spin? What was the nature of the spin? Today, this is transparent. Um, Like so many institutions in the age of uh, mass technology, the media has become transparent. Mm. And it makes things, um, well, interesting, certainly. (laughs) You, you mentioned um, the media entering the fray. 
Uh, let me ask about your decision to enter the political arena. I've, I've heard you say in different places that you're a reluctant political combatant, that your preference would have been to read literature and write literary criticism. But as a relatively young person, you reached that conclusion that politics was, was the arena in which the things you cared about would be litigated. Do you want to talk a bit about that insight and how you've come to conceptualize politics properly defined? Yes, well, I suppose that, that, that is the case. I mean, my first loves were music and literature, eh, what, what I thought I would spend my life immersed in. I still do manage to spend a significant chunk of my life immersed in them, I should say. It's not all misery. <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, certainly at some point I realized that, well, and this is going to sound rather self-elevating, but I don't mean it to be. But the philosopher Leo Strauss, it was once said of him by one of his students that effectively he had no philosophy other than to make the world safe for philosophizing. I would say that if I have a ground feeling about politics and the culture, it is that I want society to be safe for the practice of culture, which of course includes the free exchange of ideas, writing, debate. Um, and much more, the litigation of ideas in the public square. And uh, I realized in my own lifetime that 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 was um, hard to a great extent in all sorts of forms of the arts and culture, in politics. And effectively, you couldn't sort of cut yourself off from this. Uh, To do so would would make the situation for yourself and the society worse. Mm -hmm. You had to get your, your hands dirty, as it were. How dirty, I leave to your own judgment. But... uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes is a great quote from Schiller. And Schiller once said, uh, he said, be a part of your age, but do not be its creature. And um, I try to be a part of my age, to be involved with the big debates of my time, to throw myself into them. But I don't like to think of myself solely as a creature of those things. One of the things that many would say define your, your style and the topics you tackle is that you're a bit fearless. You're prepared to challenge Schilbus and take on third-rail topics from immigration to gender and even race. Yet you're popular. Knowing the overwhelming reception to your arguments, why do you think more people are reluctant to tackle the subjects and lines of thinking that you do? Why, in other words, isn't the market producing more Douglas Murrays? Well, of course, I hope that that the market does. Although maybe for my own personal self-interest, it'd be good if it didn't. But no, I mean, I genuinely, you know, I would quite like there to be lots more people who ran into minefields in the manner that I tend to do. It, it would be nice to have a bit of company out there. Uh, but no, I do have quite a lot of company out there. I suppose it's probably just some kind of, um, it must be something in one's character. I mean, um, my friend Sam Harris said publicly some years ago about me, he said, I just don't have that gear you have where something gets under your skin and you decide to eat it alive, you know. Um, uh, so I suppose that there's, it's partly that. Partly, of course, I've always been attracted to dangerous things. I, I suppose I was probably one of those children who, when you said, don't touch that, immediately touched it. Um, but also, I mean, all the really interesting questions are the difficult ones, aren't they? It's like all the really interesting people exist precisely on the border between light and darkness. Um, All the really interesting subjects are the difficult ones. Uh, I mean, one could write about the beautification of Toronto, but that would be a fairly simple task. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, I say, looking at this Pyongyang-esque tower behind you. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, um, wh- why, <laughs> why, why, uh, why, why deal in the easiest things, you know? Um, and I think it's always like that, isn't it? As you're going through your era, you have to be able to touch things that can explode in your face and are much more. And I think it's always interesting that every era has its um, shibboleths, its um, its its profanities. It's um, it's uh, you can't say that, and uh, and and of course sometimes there's good reason for it, and sometimes there just isn't. Um, but I don't I don't deliberately choose subjects which are you know unpleasant or difficult. Uh, but undoubtedly, when I see something that I know is not true. And everyone is making me say it. I, I won't say it. I'm, I do have a horrible similarity to the child in the Hans Christian Andersen tale. You know. Let me follow up with a question that an aspiring Douglas Murray might ask. Um, I, I know you've recently launched a new podcast called Uncancelled History. First time I've been tempted into this terrain. <laughs> How have you managed to do what you do and write about what you do without being cancelled? Is it about how you make your arguments or is there something more basic about not cowering when challenged or when others speak up to challenge you? I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm a bit of a believer in the old gods, which means I, I slightly fear the humanities. So I very, very much fear tempting fate. So when you say <laughs> you haven't yet been cancelled, I fear desperately that, you know, I'm going to say, ha, ah, this is the reason why, and tomorrow all of the fates are going to hitch up their skirts and come running at me at a thousand miles an hour, you know, and it'll be over and I shall regret deeply sitting at this desk with you and showing such appalling uh, um, pride before the fall. I don't know. I mean, I I write for a lot of the mainstream press. I, I, I've, I don't think anyone could say I've ever been silenced. Certainly they couldn't say I've ever been silent. Um, but... I suppose partly that's uh, maybe the people who try to sort of cancel people. It's not a phrase I particularly care for, but perhaps it's the people who know that know that I'm so far beyond redemption that they couldn't possibly reach me. Or maybe it's that they realize that I fundamentally don't care for their opinion or their blessing. I think the people who are in a difficult position in this era, I've said this before, but I repeat it because it's quite important in a way, is that the people in this era who are in uh, um, danger are people who have weak bosses above them. Mm. Uh, it might be in the media, it might be in business, you know. I mean, there's people like that partner at KPMG who said, you know, implicit bias training's a crock of shit, which it is. Uh, and um, uh, am I allowed to say crock of shit? Just do. Okay. Uh, anyhow, he said something like that, and uh, he, he, he was fired, you know, and he was a partner at the firm. <laughs> Why? Because the other partners were, were wobbly, you know, and, and so on. So... Um, that's uh, 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 that's that's the that's the danger that people in our era are in. I'm in the rather happier position of sort of pretty much being my own man, and I mean I'm responsible to my readers of my books, and I suppose to my editors. They might differ on that as to how much I actually. But anyway, uh, I don't really have you know weak people above me who would be able to bow to a mob, and I'm certainly not going to bow to any mob. I'm mob. I never saw a mob. Uh, that I cared for. 
You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Some of the arguments you make, both in The Strange Death of Europe and in The Madness of Crowds, might be shocking for those Canadian listeners who still mostly rely on the legacy media for their information. Uh, yet probably 10 years ago, they wouldn't even, these ideas wouldn't even have been nearly as controversial. Yeah, Why has that pendulum swung, and do you feel any sense that it may be swinging back? It'll swing back. Um... Basically, it was a small number of um, voices managed to get an undue ability to throttle on the mainstream discourse on a set of things. I mean, everything I say about immigration, for instance, is what is said by every major party in the United Kingdom, Australia, almost Canada, pretty normal. Most people want restrictions on immigration. Um, and all public polls show uh, I mean, very few people are open borders lunatics, except for in the public sphere. Um, and I think it's something to do with the difficulty of holding out certain ideas in public. I don't know why certain people have found it so difficult. I, I, well, I do, actually, because I study these people and I watch them very closely when they're in action. Why is it so hard for a politician to say, you know, we don't need this number more people or all sorts of other things. Um, I mean, in my most recent book, which since you haven't plugged it, I will, uh, The War on the West, uh, which has got even more shocking arguments for Canadian audi- uh, audience. Um, what I what I mentioned there is, is genuinely, I mean, astonishing, which is the way in which countries like Canada and Britain and America have decided to have a war on their own origins, their own cultures, our own pasts. And the inability of people in public positions to speak out against that, well, that is very striking, you know, because if you if you don't sort of have a shared past you agree on, the future is very, very messy. But I can see why, in a way. It's because lots of weak people who don't know very much are in a lot of positions of power, you know, and they sort of get cowed by mobs and the latest claim that's made sort of wrong foots them and before they know it, they're thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to defend colonialism. Well, no, you're not. You just have to explain we're here because history happened. You know? oh, I, let me ask about uh, the war on the West. Um, as you outline in the book, uh, there's an increasing attack on the basic precepts of liberalism, including, among other things, the idea that we ought to be judged as individuals on our own merit. How, Douglas, did we go from the demands to extend the benefits of liberalism to neglected people, including racial and sexual minorities, to essentially going backwards, such that these immutable characteristics are now viewed as fundamentally defining individuals? Well, you could say that it's an overcorrection. That's what I sort of basically came to the conclusion of that and the madness of crowds, that we were living in an era of overcorrection. Nobody can deny that in past times, you know, women didn't have as many rights as men, 
gay people didn't have the rights that straight people did, and that ethnic minorities did not have all the, the rights that uh, that white majorities did. You might also note, of course, that that's the same with ethnic minorities in almost every country and still is in many countries in the world today. However, uh, this needed to be corrected, and particularly since the 1960s, most of our countries certainly have done a lot to correct it. I don't say by any means there's nothing left to do, but those sorts of wars are pretty much over. However, they have become now the founding myth of a country like Canada, for instance. Uh, if you get rid of the the story you used to have about Canada, you've got to get a new one. What is it? I would say that the modern Canadian story is probably the weakest of all. It's a sort of, you know, we're Canadian and that's because we're, we're diverse. And because we're diverse, that's also because we're nice. And because we're nice, we're Canadian and sort of round and round in this incredibly shallow loop. But if you don't agree on your past or you hate your past or you can invent extraordinary public uh, stampedes against your past, as have happened in this country in recent years, and as I highlight in the war on the West, if you do that, you've got to kind of create this modern Trudeau of banality. you know, and, and I don't think it's very healthy. I, I, th- I think you have to have a healthy attitude towards your past. To admire the people who got you here, you know, I mean, the country we're sitting in, Canada, is apart from the architecture, is I mean, is a remarkable thing. Uh, I mean, a remarkable achievement. Um, I travel all the time around the world and see societies that are in real trouble. You know, and when you have one that you know works pretty well. When something bad happens to somebody in Canada, they tend to have recourse of some kind within the law. You've got a law that broadly works. You know, that's not nothing. Well, how did that happen? Because impressive people, predominantly men, it has to be said, I mean, that's a shocking thing to say in itself, but made sure that that was the case and that this is the state as a result that you've inherited. Was everything about it perfect? Obviously not. But it would have fallen out very differently if people had done different things back then. And maybe it could have been a lot worse. One of the, one of the great, you use the word liberalism, and of course the word liberalism is such a difficult word because it's a, it's, a, it's a shapeshifter word. You know, it moves meaning as it crosses borders even. Liberal in Canada means something different from liberal in America and different from something liberal in Britain, liberal in America, liberal in the Netherlands. But if we meant it in the term that, say, Isaiah Berlin meant it, one of the problems is that, that has always been what the liberal project is. Is it? A, and there was always there were always two broad schools of thought on this. One of Berlin's proteges, John Gray, talks about this in Modus Vivendi as a form of liberalism which recognizes that the liberal ideal is to end up in a state in which life can be lived in a plurality of ways. <clears throat> Let's say that's liberalism one. Liberalism two is an evangelical, ongoing form of liberalism, which forever seeks more fights, more um, rights. Um, And uh, I I believe this is where liberalism has got into trouble, Mm. is is liberalism too. What my late friend, the Australian political philosopher Ken Minogue, described as uh, St. George in retirement syndrome, where St. George slays the dragon, gets such a claim for it that he might stagger around the land looking for ever smaller animals to slay until eventually he's swinging his sword at thin air 
I would have said that a lot of the sort of activists in a country like Canada these days are essentially St. George in retirement. They'd like to get some of that action of the 1960s, but it ain't around anymore. So they sort of swing their swords at imaginary Nazis. They'd wish, they sort of wish they had Nazis in a way. Of course, they don't really. I mean, they, they shouldn't. But in a way, they, 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 they miss them. Like the old Kavafi point about the barbarians. They gave them a point, you know. Last week, I interviewed David Frum on American Thanksgiving, and he said the following. Douglas Murray, in his new book, makes this point, I think it's a very profound one, that democratic politics has to begin with a gratitude for the people who came before you. What do you mean, and why must democracy be rooted ultimately in a sense of gratitude? I'm very pleased that David said that. Um, I'm glad he did. Um, well, you know, it's so easy to live your life uh, filled with resentment. It's so easy. Um, I don't know if anything bad has ever happened to you. I assume it has. It's happened to us all. And sometimes things that are bad happen to you and you just can't see a damn reason for why it should have happened. It might be an accident, falling ill of a loved one death of a loved one, um, all sorts of things, a setback at work, a setback in your personal life. Uh, it's very easy for these things to take knocks out of us in life and for us as a result to be resentful people. And I would suggest that we all know resentful people, people who are eaten up by resentment. And to an extent, I think we live in an era of resentment where people get points, they get political advancement by wandering around looking for people who they can claim have hurt them. Um, what is what is a better way to grab attention than to say I have been offended or I've been hurt I've been made physically unsafe that's one of the ones you hear always in a situation where they're not remotely physically unsafe um, but this is the way in which in our era you sort of grab the microphone I'm, I acknowledge the irony that I'm sitting in front of a microphone but Broadly speaking, that's the way in which people have tried to grab the mic in the modern era, is to say, I, I have suffered, or people like me have suffered, or my forebears suffered, and ergo, you must listen to me, and I am right. Um, among much else, and in my book I partly rely on Nietzsche, who you always have to use carefully. Uh, he's a philosopher you have to use very carefully. Um, but there is an insight that he makes in Genealogy of Morals where he says that the person of resentment uh, has an awful lot of problems in their life because among them is, of course, the fact that the, the, the person of resentment not only will live a thwarted life, they will also wish to tear open scars long healed and then cry about their pain. Um, but they will also very rarely be able to meet the correct person who needs to come along in Nietzsche's version it's what he calls I think a secular priest to stand across their lives and say actually there might be a reason why you have resentment there might be someone who screwed up your life and thwarted you and the person is you mm. now the issue with resentment is what is the only thing that you can answer it with you have to answer it with something of equal depth an equal depth of human emotion. And I say that the uh, answer to it is gratitude. The gratitude is the only emotion of equal depth that can counter out resentment. Much in the same way that probably the only thing that can, can 
counter human suffering is love. Um, you you mustn't get caught in this place of resentment any more than you should than you should hope to get stuck in a position of suffering in your life. Um, but gratitude gratitude isn't encouraged in our era. And it's not just the, the, the underlying philosophy of the era, the celebration of whinging, the celebration of complaint. It's also that our era doesn't know what to do with our luck. And I say luck, it's not luck, of course. It's, um, I had this conversation with Joe Rogan recently. It's more than luck. It's, it's what I referred to earlier, your predecessors having made good choices, broadly speaking, you know. Um, and so we don't know what to do with it, and we sort of don't think we should boast about it. And as a result, we, we in countries like Canada and America and Britain, the world's liberal democracies, have become um, ashamed of celebrating good things about ourselves. But you, you have to, because, I mean, there must be something we're doing right. I mean, as I often say, the footfall speaks for itself. You know, people... People do not, broadly speaking, flee Canada for other countries. There is no footfall at the Mexican border of Texans trying to break into Venezuela. And you don't even see ships trying to cross the channel illegally from Dover to try to make it to the safety of France. Um, we must be doing something right in our societies. So why, why don't we try to work out what that is? And not not celebrated in it. You know, I'm not I'm not a sort of tub thumping nationalist flag waver type. I have the quiet patriotism, which was what my type of British person was brought up with. But I think that we should have gratitude. Um, and since I travel very wi widely to very benighted parts of the world, I can assure you that the thing I feel more than anything whenever I return is gratitude. Well, Douglas, if gratitude's a virtue, I'm grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a great pleasure. Now, as I said in my introduction, Douglas recently participated in the Monk debate on whether or not to trust the mainstream media. Thanks to the debate organizers, we're pleased to bring you some bonus coverage. Douglas's opening statement at the debate. Enjoy. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here. As Rudyard said, I've come a rather long way from the front lines of the Ukraine conflict because I like to see these things with my own eyes for myself and to come to my own conclusions. I came out through Moldova the other day, through London, then got to Toronto, and a friend of mine said, why are you going to Toronto? I said, an invitation to Toronto in late November? Who on earth says no to that? <laughs> Only a madman would say no to that. Uh, you'll see shortly why I'm so keen to speak about this issue here in Canada. Let me put it this way, though, to begin with. Um, I would say in recent years, any sentient observer of the media will have had their moment of realization, a moment where they saw through something that the mainstream media was doing. It may have happened because the mainstream media, media said something about you or someone you know. It may be, as in my case, for instance, that an entire country got maligned by the mainstream media. It's very interesting, this result. It was a 48-52. That's exactly the result that the British people had in the Brexit vote. Um, <coughs> you know what? Um, the, when we voted to leave the European Union, we did so against all of the implications of the New York Times, Michelle's employer. We just didn't listen to them. And, <coughs> and the New York Times never forgave us. 
Ever since 2016, there has not been one story in the New York Times that's positive about Britain. We have had, and I'll run through some of them, we had a culinary review that said that the British people still survive on mutton and oatmeal. <laughs> we had an anti-Brexit piece from the north of England, from Lancashire, a piece of reporting, where the author ended up having to admit that every single one of his facts was wrong, but his perception was correct. We had uh, recently the New York Times drafted in somebody from Russia today, Vladimir Putin's propaganda channel, as an employee of the New York Times, to attack Brexit Britain. And when Her Majesty the Queen died, not 10 days of mourning was observed at the New York Times, three hours before they started attacking the Queen. And they did so day after day after day, because they hate Brexit Britain. That is just an agenda, ladies and gentlemen. That's not anything else. That's an agenda, one they've decided to take. Now, I said that I want to be here in Canada to talk about this because I think that this country has just been through something absolutely extraordinary. You really know that the world is in trouble when Canada becomes very interesting. <laughs> uh, I remember when your elections, as Norm Macdonald said, were all about, like, should we put up that bridge or not? Uh, now Canada has become really interesting. It became interesting in January and February of this year. Why? Because you had protesters in Ottawa. Really interesting when people come out in large numbers. And you know what the job of reporters is? The job of reporters is to go out and say, why are you on the streets? What brought you here? Why are you here with your kids? Why have you got a bouncy castle in the middle of Ottawa? That's a bit strange. <laughs> Ask them questions. Just find out the story. But you know what? The government didn't want that in Canada. Your prime minister decided in advance that these people were, oh, what did he do? All the modern uh, excommunications. They were Nazis. They were white supremacists. They were anti-Semites. They were probably homophobes. They were misogynists. They were probably transphobes, etc., etc., etc. He did all the things you do in the modern political age if you want to just defenestrate somebody who's awkward to you. And then he brings in the Emergency Powers Act. Now, at such a time, what would the mainstream media do? It would question it. It would question it. The Canadian mainstream media did not. The Canadian mainstream media acted as an amen chorus of the Canadian government. I will give you a couple of examples, but... <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I could go on for hours with examples of this. You had a CBC host describing the Freedom Convoy as a, quote, feral mob. You had a Toronto Star columnist saying, quote, sorry for the language, it's a homegrown hate farm that was then jet-fueled by an American right-funded rat-fucking operation. Jesus, they can't even write at these papers anymore. <laughs> CBC said that two indigenous women were so scared to go outside in Ottawa because of racist violence didn't bother to mention that indigenous drummers had led the truckers in an O Canada rendition. The National Observer said that the many black and indigenous Freedom Convoy supporters were in fact duped by the truckers. The Globe and Mail reporter said, my 13-year-old son told me to tell protesters I'm not a Jew out of fear of anti-Semitic violence without mentioning that one of the leaders of the convoy was himself Jewish. Now, why is this so rancid? Utterly, utterly rancid and corrupt. Because in this country, your media, your mainstream media, is funded by the government. 
a totally corrupted system. In 2018, oh, election year, coincidence, the Canadian media has given $595 million over five years. The Toronto Star estimated it was going to be get, getting $3 million from the government in the first half of the year. It went on and on. So you see, the mainstream, the government in Canada can tell people to, to see, the, they can tell the banks to shut down people's bank accounts. Oh, yeah. Your government can do that, and if you're happy with that, just think about what would happen if the shoe was on the other foot. The government can do that, but in Canada, they can also tell the media what to do, and the media does the bidding of the, can of the Canadian government. That isn't a free society's media. That's, I've seen unfree countries all my life, but this, in a developed, liberal democracy like Canada, is a disgrace. We're not saying don't read the mainstream media. We're just saying don't trust them. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>